It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey, this is a slam dunk of a story. The L.A. Lakers, which happens to be one of the most lucrative franchises in the National Basketball Association, got $4.5 million in the federal bailout bill. What? But now the Lakers uh, are returning the money. So it's the same thing as Harvard, same thing as Shake Shack. But, you know, wasn't this all supposed to be for small businesses? On what planet are the Lakers uh, a small business? Who approved these things? It's just unbelievable. I mean, I, you know, I understand the Lakers have taken a big financial hit, but it's an incredibly lucrative sports organization. Meanwhile, JetBlue uh, has now become the first U.S. airline, and I predict it will not be the last, to require passengers to wear masks while they're flying. They already have required uh, crews to wear masks, and I think many of the airlines have followed that. And I think we're looking here at the future, at least for the new normal, so to speak, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, because if JetBlue passengers have to be masked, and look, that, that is not a lot of fun on, for example, a cross-country flight. Uh, people who are flying United, American, Delta, whatever, are going to say, well, I need to be safe as well. The JetBlue policy taking effect May 4th. Um, This is um, a very heartfelt um, description of what it's like to have COVID-19 from CNN anchor Brooke Baldwin. She's gotten a lot less attention than Chris Cuomo because, of course, governor's brother and then his wife had it. Uh, One of his sons had it and feel badly about that. But she was knocked out of action for three weeks. And to her credit, I think, and a lot of these people who've gone public, you know, rather than just trying to pretend it didn't happen, I think are serving an educational uh, function here. So Brooke Baldwin, in the evenings, I started a habit of climbing into the bathtub for 45 to 60 minutes just to try to use the hot water to distract my skin from the all-encompassing ache that would begin in my lower extremities, the kind that only two extra-strength Tylenol could eventually dull. Um, then she lost, first she was smelling an acrid ammonia-like odor of jewelry cleaner, except there was no jewelry cleaner. Then she lost her sense of uh, smell and taste. That seemed to be a common, um, side effect here. Couldn't taste the salted butter on her toast or the whipped peppermint in her tea. Then her energy was zapped. Most days, this is really hard to read, uh, Brooke says she would wake up soaking wet, having sweat through the sheets. There was a golf ball-sized gland bulging under her jaw. Her body was fighting. Over two weeks, the fills, excuse me, the fever, chills, aches would sometimes leave just long enough to fool me into thinking I was finally recovering. Then they would revisit me with a vengeance. I went to some very dark places, she said. And then under the influence of the coronavirus, as each day came to a close, I would often cry unable to stave off the sense of dread and isolation I felt about what was to come. And she was separated from her husband because they didn't want him to get it. But finally, she was so uh, devastated by this that he did come and risk his own health to try to comfort her. So good for Brooke Baldwin. I'm glad she's recovered. She's back on the air and she's talking in you know graphic detail about what happened. You know, I like to get feedback from folks. Um, one of the places you can leave a comment, in addition to my Twitter feed, at Howard Kurtz, of course, uh, is Apple iTunes, where you can also subscribe. So here are a few that I've noticed during the virus era. Howard, your show is truly a gift to me every day. Thank you. Um, I don't always agree with you because I am more conservative in nature, but I love the way you stay objective and ask that you never change. I have my DVR set to record your show. First thing I watch on Sunday morning, I get a bit annoyed 
with Governor Cuomo interrupting your show, as I currently live in California. I get a bit annoyed, too, but I think the last two weeks he's started at noon Eastern, so uh, Andrew Cuomo has not interrupted my show at all. Um, keep up your real news reporting very respectfully. Jeff Sailors. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, here's one. Thanks, Howard, for your clear vision and unflinching integrity. Well, that's really nice. Uh, you provide a breath of fresh air every day, including Sundays on Fox, from one Brooklynite to another. Warmest gratitude. Stay well. Uh, Brooklyn 2SF. Uh, okay, I don't know who that is, but a lot of people in Brooklyn. Fantastic podcast. I look forward to listening every night to hear objective and unbiased reporting by HK. Thank you. Please keep it going. I will do my best to keep it going. I think there's a hunger out there. I mean, there's so much partisanship, as you know. And every time I do a show or write a column, I get the pro-Trump people uh, kicking the crap out of me, and I get the anti-Trump people kicking the crap out of me. You're too hard. You're too soft. You hate him. You love him. Um, and you wonder, is it like, are these people reading the same columns? Are they watching the same television show? But I think one of the reasons we have an audience that has uh, hovered over 2 million, we've been over 3 million uh, during this virus period, uh, is because people like somebody at least tries to play it down the middle. All right. With no further ado, story number one. Washington Post has a scoop. U.S. intelligence agency agencies issued warnings about the coronavirus in more than a dozen classified briefings prepared for President Trump in January and February. And that was a time that he was playing down the threat. The repeated warnings were conveyed in the president's daily brief, the PDB, a sensitive report produced before dawn each day. Um, we know from lots of reporting uh, that the president doesn't always read the PDB and he gets orally briefed, uh, but sometimes he doesn't have as much patience for that. According to this report in the Post, the intel people made clear, and this is early on, remember, that China was suppressing information about the contagion's transmissibility and lethal toll and raised the prospect of dire political and economic consequences. U.S. officials said it reflected a level of attention comparable to periods when analysts have been tracking terrorism threats, overseas conflicts, or other rapidly developing security issues. Uh, White House playing it down. Well, White House is uh, Hogan Gidley, uh, Deputy Press Secretary, uh, refusing, uh, says, um, says President Trump rose to fight this crisis head on by taking early, aggressive, historic action to protect the health, well, wealth and well-being of the American people. Not really addressing the point about the PDB. Uh, the story reminds us as, as late as March 10th, Trump said, just stay calm, it will go away. The next day, the WHO declared the coronavirus outbreak a global pandemic. Um, By then, officials said the warnings in this president's daily brief and other intel reports had taken on the aspect of an insistent drumbeat. So kind of adds to our knowledge uh, about what was going on um, with the president as far as, uh, you know, those months of January, February, when I think any objective analysis would say that a lot of crucial time was lost, but he did do the travel restrictions on China, which he was criticized for by Biden, by Democrats, xenophobic people said. Now people look back and said, yeah, that was a good thing. Uh, so it is a mixed record to say the least. All right, story number two. So when I was on the podcast here yesterday, I was saying that it wasn't clear whether or not there would be a coronavirus briefing last evening. Because the oh, on Friday they had a briefing, but Trump took no questions. Saturday briefing canceled. Sunday briefing canceled. Monday morning, uh, the White House put out word there would not be a coronavirus briefing. And then 
it was on, it was off, it was back on. And then the coronavirus briefing was canceled in the sense that you didn't have, you know, Fauci and Burks and the medical experts and Vice President Pence at the White House with Trump as sort of the lead spokesman. Instead, there was a solo news conference in the same time slot, because you know Trump thinks of these things as television programming. And that lasted about an hour, I think a little bit less. So the fact, you know, a lot of the people, including some of the president's own Republican allies who are saying he needs to do fewer of these appearances, not let them go on so long. Uh, these briefings are hurting him. They were kind of rejoicing when it looked like there wasn't going to be one yesterday. And, uh, and then there was one, except it was a solo news conference. Uh, New York Times has this take. The lure of cameras in the Rose Garden proved too hard to resist. For a president who relishes the spotlight and spends hours a day watching television, the idea of passing on his daily chance to get his message out turned out to be untenable, despite his anger over his coverage. And so he was back, defending his handling of the pandemic and promising to reopen the country soon. And he talked about a whole lot of things, because it is a news conference. He went after Sleepy Joe. Um, He complained about being persecuted. He talked about, well, if it wasn't for me, we would have been at war with North Korea. There's no evidence of that. Uh, Let's see. What else did the president say? This was actually one of his better appearances, maybe because he wasn't caught between, well, Dr. Fauci says this and Dr. Berg says this, and what do you say? Um, and, And the president himself didn't indulge in as much airing of grievances as he has at many of these virus briefings, which I don't think serves him well. Look, he can say whatever he wants. He can beat up on the press. He can complain about bad reporting. But... That comes with the territory when you're a commander-in-chief. And I was talking about Ari Fleischer uh, with this uh, when he was on Media Buzz on Sunday. I'll come back to Ari a little later. Uh, In terms of, um, you know, George W. Bush got a lot of unfriendly questions. Every president gets unfriendly questions. You can argue the press was easier on Obama. Uh, It certainly wasn't easy on Clinton uh, during the fundraising scandals and during the sex scandals and the Monica scandal. But in any event, you know, the pre- a president has a way of just sort of, you know, brushing off or using a little humor to deflect or diffuse questions he does not like. Donald Trump did that yesterday in a way he often does not. It seemed to me he was trying to be more disciplined. So a la- the last question or next to last question was from Olivia Newsy of New York Magazine. And she said, do you deserve to be reelected after uh, so many Americans have died, death toll now over 55,000 Uh, almost as many as died during all the years of the Vietnam War, she puts it to him. And you thought, you know, a week ago, two days ago, the president might say, you know, that's a hostile question, you people, you don't recognize all the great things I've done. The president instead said this, yeah, we've lost a lot of people, but if you look at what original projections were, 2.2 million, we're probably heading to 60,000, 70,000. It's far too many. One person is too many for this, and I think we've made a lot of really good decisions. Um, so uh, also, I, I, I talked about this on Media Buzz Sunday. I've talked about it on the podcast. Joe Biden doesn't make much news these days, obviously. And we'll come back to Biden as well. Um, did a virtual fundraiser. Uh, yeah, virtual meeting with donors. And he, 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 he trotted out this wacky idea that President Trump is going to try to delay the election. Nothing to substantiate it. The president doesn't have that power. And I said the media really gave him a pass. They bird dog and fact check and true squad every single syllable out of Donald Trump's mouth. When Biden says something that he can't back up, it's like the 10th paragraph. Oh, yeah, by the way, the president can't do that. So President Trump was asked about this. He said 
He had the first he'd ever heard about it. I never even thought of changing the date of the election, just to um, clear the air there. The Atlantic has a piece about how Donald Trump, Atlantic, a magazine not terribly friendly to this president, has, had, did a big impeach cover, I don't know, what, a year ago or so. Um, Trump is a poster pandemic, not as a public health crisis or an economic crisis. Instead, he has treated it as a communications problem that requires a good sales pitch, which is mostly delivered via the White House briefing room. And um, The Atlantic says, as surly and peaked as Trump can appear during a press conference, it's also clear he loves the format. Oh, that is true. I've said this for years. In fact, it's one of the few presidential duties he actually seems to enjoy. He delighted in press conferences in 2016. He brought them back early in his presidency. He savors jousting with reporters, which both spotlights his gift for insult and serves his project on undermining the press. He loves the pomp, which he gets to perform being president before the nation. And more important, the little red lights of the cameras. He's a lifelong salesman. Okay. And then it goes on to say that, well, you know, even though the, the Atlantic thinks that his performances at these uh, daily briefings uh, have been fairly disastrous, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention put out a field manual for dealing with an epidemiological crisis, which devotes substantial attention to the importance of communicating effectively with the public during an outbreak. Why do you think Andrew Cuomo is getting so much praise when he has these daily press conferences and he says, blame me? And he says, here, I'm gonna, not going to sugarcoat it. Here are things that are wrong. Maybe we made some mistakes. Here's what it looks like. I will reopen when I can. Uh, because he's communicating. So if you like Cuomo or you, you like Democrats, you say, wow, he's doing a great job. If you don't like Donald Trump or you don't like Republicans, you say he makes it all about him. And look, there are fair criticisms here to be made. And I don't agree that all the questions are hostile. Some of them are perfectly legitimate questions that you would expect journalists to ask, even if they do it in a grandstanding or overly aggressive manner, in the middle of a crisis in which 55,000 Americans have died. So on the one hand, The Atlantic is saying, well, he just does, he treats it all as a PR challenge. On the other hand, that is part of the challenge because you've got to deal with people's morale. They want hope. They want to know when they're going to go back to work. They want facts. They want information. Uh, and they want to hear from the medical experts. Uh, last point on Ari Fleischer. Uh, on my show on Sunday, he said that he thinks that not only should the president do uh, fewer of these uh, coronavirus briefings, but that they go on way too long. I mean, some of them have been 90 minutes and even two hours. And Ari had a colorful way of putting it on Media Buzz. He told me, you know, it's like being in a bar at 2 a.m. Anything good that's going to happen has already happened, and the only thing that can happen from this point on is something bad. Well, the New York Times liked that quote so much that it called up Ari Fleischer, got him to repeat it, and so he's quoted today in the Times as saying the same thing he said to me on Sunday. You know, so you don't have to say toll Fox News or whatever. I mean, I don't mind. I I've done that. You see somebody who has a colorful quote and you call them up. I often try to get them to say something different. Maybe that was the attempt, but uh, Ari couldn't top it. He couldn't top the uh, 2 a.m. in a bar. And I had to jump in and say, okay, it's an interesting analogy, but President Trump doesn't drink, so the bar thing doesn't quite work when it comes to him. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Let's move on to story number three, uh, and that has to do with the substance of yesterday's presser. Uh, I should note that as of now, as I'm speaking to you, there is no coronavirus press briefing uh, on the official White House schedule for tonight, but they can add one, you know, at 4 o'clock, for 5 o'clock, I mean, whatever they want to do. The uh, president makes the final call, and he doesn't have to give much notice. So at the presser yesterday, 
this New York Times piece recalls that seven weeks ago, the president promised that anyone who needed a test could get one. Since then, the U.S. has conducted about 5.4 million tests. It's more than any other country, as the president routinely brags. But in percentage terms, it equals about 1.6% of our total population. A group of experts at Harvard uh, has called for 5 million tests a day. Uh, ramping up to 20 million a day by late July. Well, that's an enormous, gargantuan undertaking. So President, one of the reasons he called the news conference was to unveil a plan to ramp up the federal government's help to the states on testing. But, at least according to the Times, his proposal ran short of what most public health experts say is necessary. The problem is there may be, in all these states, and particularly in the hardest-hit states, a whole lot of people who have the virus, but they don't have the symptoms. And since we don't have enough testing, we don't know. Uh, Trump's announcement came after weeks of insisting that the nation's testing capability was fully sufficient to begin opening up the country. He said that just 10 days ago. Numerous public health experts say that is untrue. Okay, here is the president tweeting on this very subject. We are doing far more and better testing than any other country in the world, and yet the media does nothing but complain. No matter how good a job is done, the same with the ventilators. They will never say we are doing a good job. They will only viciously gripe. That's from the Trump Twitter feed. Uh, Back to the story, an administration official said the government aimed to give the states um, the ability to test at least 2% of their populations per month. The president did not use that figure. It was not in the written plan. He just said, we're going to double the number of tests. Well, that's great. Let's double it. Let's quadruple it. Uh, Let's quintuple it. But right now, it is not enough. And, you know, lots of people can't get the tests. And these tests where you just, it's five minutes or you drive through, that may be available in some places, but not a whole lot of places. All right, story number four, I want to spend some time on this because Business Insider, uh, a website that I like a lot, it's mostly devoted to business, but does some original reporting uh, on business and other subjects, has done an interview with another person who is supporting Joe Biden's accuser, Tara Reid, the woman who says, woman who told the Washington Post, told the New York Times, told the podcast, all this took 19 days to report after she went public, that back in 1993, when she was on Biden's Senate staff, that he sexually assaulted her. Uh, originally, she had told the Washington Post he just touched her around the neck and shoulders, and then she changed her story or got more explicit and said he, she had been up against a wall and he had put... He had penetrated her with his fingers under her skirt. I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat it and made it sound nice. Now, Biden, through his campaign, has absolutely, totally denies this. There are some holes in the story. Uh, three top Biden staffers from that era in the Senate, who she says, who Tara Reid says she complained to, says they never had any such conversation. But now, Business Insider is quoting a woman named Linda Lacasse, who lived next door to Tara Reid in the mid-1990s when this is alleged to have taken place. And on the record, Linda Lacasse says that in 1995 or 1996, okay, so this is two or three years after the alleged incident, she told uh, Lacasse that she'd been assaulted by Biden. Here are some quotes. I remember her saying, here was the person that she was working for and she idolized him. And he kind of put her up against the wall and he put his hand up her skirt and he put his fingers inside her. She felt like she was assaulted. She really didn't feel it was anything she could do. Um, She remembers Reed getting emotional. She told the story, quote, she was crying. She was upset. And the more she talked about it, the more she started crying. I remember saying that she needed to file a police report. 
Now, Lacoste does not recall some of the details, exactly where it was, and so forth. There's another person interviewed by uh, Business Insider. This is Lorraine Sanchez. She worked with Tara Reid in the office of a California state senator in the mid-'90s. She told Business Insider that she recalls, again, this is at least a couple years later, Tara Reid complaining to her that her former boss in Washington had sexually assaulted her, excuse me, had sexually harassed her, and that she had been fired after raising concerns. So all of this is more corroboration um, than Christine Blasey Ford ever had. I mean, obviously, this woman worked for Biden. Whether this happened or not is impossible for any of us to say with any certainty. But now we know and we have on-the-record accounts of at least two people, plus there was an original friend that was in the original New York Times story, that she told either at the time or during the the two or three years uh, of that period in the mid-1990s. Christine Blasey Ford never even found a first-hand witness who would say that she was in the same room with Brett Kavanaugh. So that raises the question of double standard, which brings me to this National Review editorial. Uh, Because I've been very critical of the media's handling of this, while still obviously wanting to be cautious about whether it's true or not. National Review. We do not know whether the accusations that Tara Reid has leveled against Joe Biden are true or false. That is a question of evidence and of inquiry that might be answered as time rolls on. We do know, by contrast, says NR, that the double standard that has been exhibited by Biden's campaign and by the political press in tandem is a national disgrace. Both culturally and legally, due process must habitually be applied to nobody or to everyone. If upon the most frivolous and protein of pretexts, it is routinely accorded to one faction while being denied to another, it is effectively lost. And finally, National Review says, given the evidence that the evidence is stronger in this case than it was in Kavanaugh's, we know at least that the accuser and accused have met. We must ask why the same rules are not being applied in this instance. Joe Biden is hoping to be president of the United States. Might not a cloud follow him around too? And that's a reference to arguments made by some people when Brett Kavanaugh was vehemently and, and emotionally denying that he'd ever done anything, not just to Christine Blasey Ford, but some of these other female accusers, some of whose stories just fell apart and were just really flimsy. Some people said, well, he can't be a Supreme Court justice because, you know, this is unproven, but the cloud will follow him around. Well, I mean, there's the analogy for you. And so I think every time Biden is interviewed, if this doesn't come up, uh, there are going to be complaints, and understandably so. There are still networks that have not even mentioned this on the air. When um, Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar are interviewed, and they are obviously two of the women who Biden might pick as his running mate, I think I think in one instance each it's come up, and they've kind of demurred and said, well, we think all women should be heard, but we don't know the facts here. Um, this is not going to go away, especially now that there is more corroboration. Again, this doesn't mean it's true. You have totally conflicting stories, but you have more corroboration than we had during the entire Brett Kavanaugh investigation, uh, hearings, and ultimate confirmation to the high court. And finally, uh, story number five. I guess you could say this is a little bit of a Biden segue, but Howard Stern, who has a big following, who uh, famously hosted Donald Trump for many, many years when he was a New York real estate guy, when he was a celebrity, The Apprentice, and they would talk about women, they would rate women's looks. You know, all this came out during the 2016 campaign, and Stern said Trump was one of the you know greatest guests he ever had. But as president, it's also no secret that Howard uh, is appalled. So he now says uh, on his Sirius XM show, I am all in on Joe Biden. You see the wall that's right next to you? I'll vote for the wall. 
over a guy who tells me I should pour Clorox into my mouth. Yes, he didn't say that in that way. Listen, I think we are in deep S. I think we could have been ahead of this curve. Uh, and then Howard goes off the rails here. But look, he can, he can honestly say he engages in satire. It's not necessarily the main job of POTUS. Uh, he said, for people who, I guess a caller had said, I still support Trump. What's it going to take? I don't get it, says Stern. Um, I don't think there's anyone left who will vote for him. Obviously not true if you read polls. Stern said the Trump supporters should hold a large rally where they all drink disinfectant and drop dead. Well, I think uh, I'm not even going to dignify that. But um, before you dismiss uh, what Stern says, it, it, back when Christine... Todd Whitman was running for governor of New Jersey as a Republican. This is in the 90s. Um, she uh, went on Howard Stern's show, and there was a deal that he would have her on the show and maybe even endorse her, I don't quite remember. And in exchange, if she won, um, she would name a rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike after Howard Stern. Well, Whitman did become governor. She did re- name a rest stop after Howard Stern. A lot of people did not like that, and a few years later, it got renamed after some poet or you know Walt Whitman or somebody like that. Maybe that's another rest stop. I haven't been on the Turnpike in a while. But the point is, smart politicians, and you have a lot of media people now. I mean, Stern is not, as I've said before, he's not the shock jock of the past, going on his show and having uh, serious conversations, as well as famous musicians, Paul McCartney, Anderson Cooper, Katie Couric. Uh, there's a whole bunch of people uh, who have done it. Not that this is going to move the needle, but I thought it would be something to share as the kicker, as we say to the podcast. I appreciate the feedback. I appreciate your listening. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're staying safe. I hope for all of our sakes that we can slowly move toward reopening the country. But it's a dilemma because a lot of people are still dying. And with this not with this improvement in testing, but not as many tests as we need, we still don't know the full extent of the coronavirus crisis. If you don't have a, an iPhone, you can get this podcast on Google Play. If you've got the Android phone, you can get it at foxnewspodcast.com, no matter where you are, on your Amazon device. Great day. We'll see you tomorrow with more buzz. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.